0: go to the Lord in prayer. prayer. Father God, we thank you. We praise you that we could gather together in your name as believers in your son, proclaimers of your gospel, those who believe that you have sent your son to redeem sinners, sent your son to die a bloody death, suffering your wrath on the cross having been raised the third day and now sitting on your throne at your right hand the lord jesus our savior and our lord we thank you this morning that we can proclaim your word that we can proclaim your name in jesus name amen well, this morning, we are continuing our summer our summer series. This is going to work. I think it is. We'll continue our summer series um, that we started uh, about a month and a half ago. Uh, this I'm going to be preaching today on uh, the ordinances of the church, as you see in the title of your uh, on your bulletin. Uh, also, next week, we'll continue this and finish it up. And then I will return to Ephesians uh, in two weeks. So just to give you an idea of where we are, uh, this morning we're going to show that as part of the New Covenant, the Lord Jesus commanded the church to observe two, two ordinances, uh, two simple ordinances, if you will. Uh, they, we are commanded to baptize believers in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we are commanded to observe communion in remembrance of our Lord's death. Um, Let me start with Matthew twenty-eight. You can turn to Matthew twenty-eight, verse sixteen. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit." teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, the highly anticipated descent to the moon's dusty surface had been harrowing for the two astronauts, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong. The Eagle was four minutes into its landing sequence when Armstrong uttered the words, Program Alarm. Now, most people heard that, that were listening, and they didn't know exactly what he was saying, but the frozen display on the computer read 1202. NASA, as you might might expect, had tested and retested every conceivable malfunction save this one. Flight controllers in Houston scanned their notes trying to figure out the problem, but time was running out. Uh, Eugene Krantz later explained of this moment. We would either land on the moon, we would, or we would crash attempting to land, or we would abort. The final two outcomes were not good. The 1202 alarm displayed was an error code signifying that the computer was overloaded. If it rebooted, mission rules said that they had to call for an immediate abort. Therefore, Armstrong, Neil Armstrong, took over control of the lunar module, and and yet they faced another problem. He was flying manually, and but through all the chaos, they began to realize that they were landing long or downrange of their targets. As the lunar module neared the surface, the astronauts were greeted with a vast uh, crater field that had truck-sized craters or uh, craters and boulders course, this collection of boulders would have crushed the module if they'd have landed there and its precious human cargo, bringing to, the, to an end the, uh, the America's uh, wanting to, to land on the moon, safely, that is. So flying manually and running low on fuel, Armstrong leveled off and searched for a smooth spot, and he found, he found one with about 60 seconds of fuel left and he skillfully landed the the ship with almost no fuel left on board. Then Armstrong uttered these famous words. He said this, Houston, tranquility base here, the Eagle has landed. Famous words indeed. Most of you, I'm sure, have heard those words, but not the most famous words ever uttered. Just a few hours later, Armstrong said this, as he stepped off of the, lo- the ladder of the lunar module onto the lunar surface. He said this, One small step for a man, and one giant leap for mankind. Now, you might have heard that actually, if you hear the recording of that, he said one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Now, I think that actually he did have, uh, he did say a man, uh, just to give a little explanation. Little, uh, uh, encouragement to him. actually, he's passed away a few years ago. The, these are let me just say this, these are more famous words, but I don't believe they're the most famous words ever uttered. Just a few years earlier in December 1968, the Apollo 8 had orbited the moon 10 times and broadcasting on Christmas Eve, they watched the Earth rise and as they did, as they read these famous words, which I believe are the most famous words ever uttered. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They actually read the first ten verses of Genesis as they orbited the moon. Sadly, atheist activist Madeline Murray O'Hare sued NASA, claiming a violation of church state because they had read this, these verses of Genesis. Now, the case was dismissed, and the, but the damage was done. Just after the moon landing, astronaut and elder, Buzz Aldrin, pulled wine, wafers, and a small cup from his personal pack. Aldrin was an elder at Webster Presbyterian Church in Houston, and he poured the wine, and after inviting NASA Control Center to join him, he quoted the following words from John 15. He said this, "'I am the vine, you are the branches,' Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit, for you can do nothing without me. Then he partook in communion. Later he stated this. He said, I poured the wine into the chalice our church had given me. In the one-sixth gravity of the moon, the wine curled slowly and gracefully up the side of the cup. It was interesting to think that the very first liquid ever poured on the moon and the first food eaten there were communion elements after the elements aldrin says he sensed especially strongly my unity with our church back home and with the church everywhere now as you might imagine this would have been one of the most famous communion services ever but it was kept secret by nasa because of o'hare's previous lawsuit. Later, Aldrin said this of his plan, I wondered if it might be possible to take communion on the moon, symbolizing the thought that God was revealing himself there too as man reached out into the universe. But it is Aldrin's words describing the sense of unity with the church that are especially poignant. You see, the the Lord has given his church two public ordinances, Two public ordinance ordinances to proclaim our remembrance of him and our allegiance to him. He's given us baptism and communion. You see, both ordinances, like Aldrin said, he mentioned that it he felt a unity with the church. Both ordinances are ordinances unify the church around the proclamation of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ and his gospel. Both ordinances were directly given to the church by the Lord Jesus. Now, I, can believe, I believe that we can say it even stronger. and You have this in your bulletin, but as part of the New Covenant, the Lord Jesus commanded his church to observe these two ordinances. Now today and next week, we're going to look at both so we can better understand what the Bible teaches about each one. Here at GBC, here at Grace Bible Church, we teach that and firmly believe that these two ordinances have been committed to the local church. And we are committed to both ordinances in obedience to our Lord Jesus. Specifically, we believe that Christian baptism by immersion is the solemn and beautiful testimony of a believer showing forth his faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior and his union with him in death to sin and resurrection to new life. We believe that baptism is also a sign of fellowship and identification with the visible body of Christ. Mm. We also teach that the Lord's Supper is the commemoration and proclamation of our Lord's death until He comes. You see, we believe that the Bible teaches both, and as such, we are committed to doing both as a church. Now, you might be asking yourself why it would take time to teach about these ordinances. Last week, one of you, one of you, wistfully came to me and asked. When we're going to return to to ephesians and believe me i appreciate that question and i'm ready to return to this to our study in ephesians but i feel strongly i feel strongly that we should take the time in the early development of this church to teach concerning the foundations of the church so that we are all on the same page and i believe that we uh, that our lord has commanded us to baptize believers and to observe communions Communion that is and I believe and I've seen much confusion about these topics So I want to make sure and I feel like it was it is worthwhile that we take the next two Sundays and teach concerning both It's my sincere hope then that we can refer people back to these sermons if they need to understand or ask what we believe about both I mean if you think about it We don't know who's gonna walk through those doors, right? We don't know what their background is, and so we want to be able to clearly teach what we what or show what we teach. And I want to have this as a resource so that we can uh, refer them back to it. So let's jump right in and look at the first ordinance. We are commanded to baptize believers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this morning, we're going to study four biblical essentials of baptism. We're going to see first the reality of baptism, secondly the the biblical command to be baptized, third we're going to see the biblical illustration of baptism, and fourth we're going to see the the biblical necessity to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith followed by baptism. First, let's look at the reality of baptism. The term baptism d- derives from the Greek word to baptize, baptizo. The related word washing or baptizing, uh, uh, baptismas refers to the act of actually dipping or immersing an object in water as part of a purification ritual. When used literally, the term refers to the actions like dipping uh, the dipping of fabric into dye or the immersion, a complete immersion of a person in water. Therefore, as we have stated, we believe that the proper mode of baptism is immersion in water. We believe that that you actually dip somebody into the water and bring them out. We completely immerse. This immersion, then, serves as a a symbol of one's burial and resurrection, signifying the spiritual reality, reality that believers have died to sin and have been raised to newness of life in Christ Jesus. Now, this word can be used figuratively to emphasize the close identity and solidarity between two people. In, in 1 Corinthians ten two, Paul wrote that their forefathers, the that the, the people he was writing to, their forefathers, the Israelites, were baptized into Moses. In other words, they were so closely identified with Moses that they were immersed in him. They became synonymous with one another. The New Testament teaches that all believers, if you are a believer in Christ, all believers in in Christ have been immersed into Christ Jesus at conversion. In Romans 6.3, Paul writes this, Or do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? Who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. In this context, what Paul is arguing in Romans 6 is that that we must not continue in our sin so that grace would abound, meaning that some people might say, hey, if if God shows grace, why not just continue in my sin so that that grace can be shown? And Paul's saying, no, may it never be. He reasons then that we must not continue in sin because we now identify so closely with our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been immersed in Him. We have been baptized in Him. Paul actually said elsewhere, for me to live is Christ. In other words, we are in Christ, therefore we must live to please Him. In Galatians 3.27, Paul says this, for all of you who were baptized in Christ have been clo- have clothed yourselves with Christ. So at salvation, if you are a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were baptized by Christ in His Holy Spirit. And Paul clearly articulates this truth in 1 Corinthians six seventeen. he says this but the one who joins himself to the lord is one spirit with him he, at salvation we are joined with the lord and made one spirit with him in other words he makes the spirit to dwell within us our bodies are a temple are a temple of the holy spirit we are one with him This is the same baptism that Peter refers to in 1 Peter 3.21. He says this. He says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter then is saying that baptism saves you. So the question is, what baptism is Peter talking about? Well, he's very clear. He says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, not water baptism. That isn't what saves you. What saves you is an appeal to God, an appeal to God for a good conscience. What gives us a good conscience? Baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have been, when we become believers, we have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He He cleanses us, and we're going to see that going forward here. If you turn to John three, what we're talking about here is the is the, the baptism of the Spirit that that we receive at salvation. Look at John three one. Says this: There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of, of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now let's stop there. What, what is Jesus saying? He says we must be born of the water of water and the spirit. But what does he mean? let me just say it this way what he's talking about when he refers to water he's talking about the new birth he's talking about being born again in christ he's saying then that there needs to be spiritual cleansing if you you don't have to turn there just you can just listen but in ezekiel 36 i believe i believe that that jesus then is referring back to this passage in ezekiel 36 just listen to this this is The Lord Lord talking. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. He says this in verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So I, what, what Jesus then clearly is referring to is this, is this cleansing that Ezekiel, or, or the Lord is referring to in Ezekiel. So he's referring to then the requirement that it's salvation, that a man's soul, a, a person's soul, must be cleansed. And this cleansing then, this cleansing must be accomplished by the Holy Spirit when God saves us jesus goes on to say in verse 6 he goes on to say that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit do not be amazed that i said to you that you must be born again the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but do not know where it comes from or where and where it is going so so is everyone who is born of the spirit clearly then uh, what, he, what, it, what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is that we uh, must be born of the Spirit and that salvation that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us. The Holy Spirit indwells us and cleanses us and he sanctifies us and he sets us apart for himself. We might refer to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 1:13, we're actually going to be there in a couple of weeks. He says, Paul says this, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. Let me stop there. If you listen to the progression here, and what he's saying is, is that you have heard the message of truth, which is the gospel. You have been saved having believed in the message. Then Christ does something incredibly miraculous. He seals you with his Holy Spirit. Seals you. Just listen to the text. At salvation, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. This act by God only occurs once. It, it happens at the moment of salvation. It's mysterious. The Spirit blows where it blows, or the wind blows where it blows. So it is with people who have been born of the Spirit. We don't. We can't make it happen. We can't conjure it up. It doesn't happen. On, it doesn't happen by us trying to conjure it up after the fact. God does this work in the heart of every man and woman who come to Christ. It happens at the moment of salvation. Again, not some secondary event that happens after a conversion. It happens immediately to every believer. The believer is born again of the Spirit and placed into the sphere of the Spirit's sanctifying power and indwelling presence. Paul goes on to say in, verse, in Ephesians 1.14 that the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view of, of the, to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. In other words, God sends His Holy Spirit as a pledge of our full inheritance in Christ. The Spirit indwells us, securing and preserving our eternal salvation. This is looking forward to the time when you, as a Christian, will be fully redeemed as God's own possession. The sealing of the Spirit, then, is the official mark that we are truly Christ's possession. And we're under His ownership and protection even as we await full redemption. We've been made His. He has made His Spirit to indwell us. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul refers to this Uh, Spirit baptism when he says this for by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks whether slaves or free We are made to drink of one spirit Again, Paul is is emphasizing that there's one baptism of the spirit and as believers we've been made to drink from one spirit Says much the same thing in Ephesians 4. He says this Ephesians 4 4 there is one body and one spirit just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who of all who is over all and through all and in all. And as such, the New Testament then emphasizes the unity and equality, equality that we possess as believers. Because we're in one spirit. We've all received the baptism of the spirit. We've all been placed into the church through his spirit. again, There are no exceptions to this. There's none of you who have received more of the Spirit than others. Different gifting, but no more. You've received the same, the same gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, what I want you to understand is is that this is the inward reality of salvation. This is what happens in the heart of every believer in Christ. This is the inward reality reality of baptism if you are a believer then you are baptized in the holy spirit now you might ask i hope you're asking at this point how that relates to the bat to the to water baptism how does again let me say it a different way how does water baptism relate to this baptism of the spirits put simply then Water baptism is the outward symbol of the inward reality of salvation, the outward symbol of the reality that you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit of God. The New Testament commands then all, that all believers be baptized in water as a public testimony to their faith in Christ, as a public testimony of this inward reality. John Stott says this. Baptism with water is the sign and seal of the baptism with the Spirit. You get, you know, that's what we've been saying. That, that this baptism with water is the sign and seal of baptism with Spirit. As such, I'm sorry, as much as it is, as it is of the forgiveness of sins. Then he says this. Water baptism is the initiatory Christian rite. Because spirit baptism is the initiatory Christian experience. Did you catch that? We are baptized, initiating ourselves, being initiated into the faith because of what the Holy Spirit has done in our heart. Let me give you an illustration. Baptism is like a wedding ring, they both symbolize transactions. A wedding ring symbolizes marriage, just as baptism symbolizes salvation. Wearing a ring, wearing a wedding ring, does not make you married. You can can wear a wedding ring all you want, but it doesn't make you married any more than being baptized makes you saved. And to extend the parallel then, if if a person does not wear a wedding ring, you can almost always assume they're not married. So it is with in New Testament times. If a person was not baptized, you could probably assume that he or she was not a believer. Right? So we must be clear. Baptism then is a symbol of salvation and only a symbol. But like the wedding ring, it is such an effective symbol that it should never be taken for granted. You understand that we wear the wedding ring as a symbol of our marriage baptism and it's an effective symbol we know when so we see somebody wearing a ring we can trust that they're married it's the same thing with baptism we need to we need to take it as as an effective symbol and never take it for granted beloved have you been born again of the Spirit have you believed in the finished work of Christ on the cross Jesus states in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not per- perish but have eternal life. If you haven't, I beg you to repent. I beg you to turn to him. But if you have, I, my question, my, my next question is, is have you been baptized? Publicly proclaiming that you've been saved? this brings us to our second biblical essential of baptism the biblical command to be baptized in the new testament gospels john baptized john the baptist baptized people to symbolize a turning away of sin and turning to god in matthew 3 5 you can turn there if you would like it says this Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Now John the Baptist uh, Baptist baptized those who had confessed their sins, and they thus understood their need for salvation. He challenged them not to trust in their heritage, not to trust that they were sons of Abraham, but to repent and turn to God. Significantly, the Jews had uh, baptized, up until this point, the Jews had baptized Gentile proselytes who converted to Judaism. Therefore, Jews who accepted John's baptism were confessing that they had acted as Gentiles and were not acting as the people of God. Therefore, they needed to repent and genuinely become the people of God. John's baptism prepared the people then for the arrival of the Messiah, and in that, that, it's different than believers' baptism. Now, it's important to note that John refers to Jesus in, here in Matthew, Matthew 3, signifying that his baptism is different than what was to come. Look at verse 11. He says this As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now here John prophesied that Jesus, the the one who was to come, would baptize many in the Holy Spirit. And that he would come and he would baptize unbelievers in the fire of judgment. And he goes on to say about this coming judgment in verse 12, he says this, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff, with unquenchable quenchable fire now it is significant that john baptized christ uh marking the beginning of jesus jesus's early ministry look at verse 13 then jesus arrived from galilee at the jordan coming to john to be baptized by him but john tried to prevent him saying i have need to be baptized by you and do you come to me but jesus answering 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 him said to him Permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. So Jesus, who was not sinful, was not sinful. Therefore, Jesus, who was not sinful, was baptized by John. But we know that Jesus wasn't sinful, so that couldn't signify his repentance. So what Jesus is referring to here. Is that he's referring to the righteousness required for believers to enter the kingdom of heaven therefore according to Jesus this act of baptism this act of obedience was necessary to fulfill or secure the righteousness of God for all believers you see we've said it before we said it many times that Jesus lived his life in perfect righteousness and perfect obedience to the father and this perfect righteousness has been imputed to all believers. That's Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus lived in perfect righteousness to God, and he was baptized by John to fulfill this righteousness or this requirement. In Matthew 3.16 it says this, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So we clearly see here at the baptism of Jesus the involvement of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's important for us to understand that the Father declares that Jesus is his Son and that he is well pleased with his obedience. You see, Jesus' baptism then signified the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. It was was the public proclamation that His public ministry had begun. Now, in much the same way then, water baptism signifies and is a public proclamation that we have been born again of the Spirit.
1: At the end of Jesus' public ministry, after He had died on the cross and was resurrected, He appeared to many of his disciples. We saw that and we read that in Matthew 28,
0: just just earlier. In verse 19, he gave his disciples the great commission. He told them to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus' command here to his disciples was to go forth from that mountain with the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make disciples of all the nations. They were to baptize those who believed in the name. They were to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, what we have to understand is is that the most natural interpretation of this text is that recipients of baptism then are to be disciples who were able to hear the word of Christ, understand the word of Christ, and respond obediently to the word of Christ. This means, then, that baptism is for those who have repented and turned to Christ. Again, it's it's an outward sign of an inward reality. This means that that baptism is not meant for infants or young children, but for those who have responded to the gospel and saving faith. This brings us to the third biblical essential of baptism. The biblical illustration of baptism. Turn to Acts. Acts chapter 1. In chapter 1, just before Jesus' ascension to the Father, Jesus essentially, essentially that is, repeated the command of Matthew 28 by telling his disciples, he says this in verse 8, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. In other words, you are to take my gospel to the ends of the earth. you are to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Doing what? Matthew 28. Baptizing, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, they received and were baptized by the Holy Spirit. We talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This was a special event at the day of Pentecost where God had promised, or Christ had promised, that He would send the Holy Spirit and that they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And this happened in in Acts chapter 2. And after that, Peter then took his stand and he preached the gospel, beginning what the, beginning, a fulfillment of the command of, of uh, Matthew 28 and Acts 1a. Now, if you look at Acts 2.37, look at this in Acts 2.37. Now, when they heard this, so Peter had preached, and he had preached that the one whom they had crucified was was this Jesus, and he was both Lord and Christ. He was the Messiah, and they had crucified him. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? what's a that's a great question once we come to the knowledge of our sin understanding of our sin our next question should be what shall we do peter said to them repent and each of you be baptized in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive what the gift of the holy spirit we see, then that we see here then the fruit of Jesus' command to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. See, G- uh, uh, Peter was standing in Jerusalem. Acts 1.8, would, they would be witnesses for Christ in Jerusalem and beyond to the remotest parts of the earth. We see the fruit of these commands. And Peter then commanded them to repent of their sins and what? Be baptized. Now, there are some who would mistakenly say then that baptism produces salvation. It's called baptism, baptismal regeneration. It makes it makes baptism a work that we have to we have to be baptized in order to be saved. There are some who teach this. This, te- this teaching though is contrary to the rest of Scripture that we are saved. Solely on the basis of faith, not by our works, including baptism. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 2.16, We are not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Therefore, water baptism then is a fruit of salvation. It's a fruit of salvation. It's what we should want to do. It should be our desire to be baptized after we come to know the Lord Jesus. Hence we must remember, or here we must remember, that is, that Peter is speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience. They, what we have to understand is they risk public ridicule and rejection for publicly identifying with Christ. So when they were baptized in his name, it was dangerous business for them. So here's what Peter understood when he said this. He understood this, that only true believers would proclaim, publicly proclaim by being baptized, only true believers would do this, right? Because they they risked losing so much by doing so. In other words, there weren't any closet Christians. I think that's important for us to, to, to grasp. Especially if you're sitting here today and you claim to be a Christian and you haven't been baptized. Now, also grammatically, the word translated "for," he says, he says in, in Acts two, uh, Acts two thirty-eight, "Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus, uh, name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins." That word translated "for" can also be Translated, because of. An example of this very same meaning is found in Matthew 12, 41, where Jesus tells his listeners that the Ninevites repented because of Jonah's preaching. Therefore, therefore, Peter was telling his listeners to be baptized because of the forgiveness of their sins. Again, that fits perfectly with the idea that I'm saved that I've, I've become saved and the Holy Spirit comes and in dwells in me and He cleanses me and I respond by being baptized. I respond by being baptized. Beloved, if you have been, if you have believed in the Lord Jesus, you are called to be baptized because of the cleansing of the Holy Spirit, because of the forgiveness of your sins. Fourth, forth the biblical necessity to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith followed by baptism look at Acts chapter 8 look at verse 26 but an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So we get the picture here that that we have this man traveling. He He was coming to Jerusalem to worship. Probably he's a proselyte. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And then the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join with this, this chariot. And Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture which we, he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter as, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so does he not does not so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. Now the eunuch in verse thirty-four. The eunuch answered Philip and said, "Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else?" Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. What did he do? Preached the gospel, right? He, he preached the gospel. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations. Preach the gospel as he was commanded by the Lord Jesus. And Philip opened his mouth and preached Jesus to him, and as they went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said look water what prevents me from being baptized now in verse 37 we have a verse here that's contested it says and, if, and Philip said if you believe with all your heart you may and he answered and said I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God now again the, the best manuscripts don't have this verse but that's okay because in reality uh, the verse 38 fits perfectly. And he ordered the, the chariot to stop, and he went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Clearly, clearly, he was Philip preached the gospel to this man. Clearly, this man believed the gospel. This man believed that the Lord Jesus went to the cross and died for his sins. And then he said, well, what prevents me from being baptized? He believed. I need to be baptized Baptize me and what did philip do when they came it says he ordered the chariot to stop verse 38 and they both went down to the water philip as well as the eunuch and he baptized him and when they came up out of the water the spirit of the lord snatched philip away and the eunuch no longer saw him but he went on his way rejoicing but philip found himself in azotus and he passed through and kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. But The point is, the point is is that this man believed, this unit, he believed. They had water available and they went down to the water and he baptized them. He completely immersed them, him that is, in, in the water. You see, beloved, it is the clear command of scripture for believers to be baptized in water signifying that you publicly identify with jesus christ as your lord and savior the question then is are you saved have you been born again of the spirits if you had then you must be baptized you must identify with christ in the waters of baptism if you're a believer in christ don't let time slip away Don't let let one month turn into two months, turn into three months, turn into four. Before you know it, you've let years slip away and you haven't done this. As we said earlier, you cannot be a closet Christian. You must declare to the world that God has truly saved you. Let me leave you with a quote by Henry Allen Ironside. He says this, Baptism is the glad expression of a grateful heart recognizing its identity with Christ in death, burial, and resurrection. Many of us look back to the moment when we were baptized as one of the most precious experiences we have ever known. It's precious. It's precious. When the believer in the Lord Jesus goes into the waters, gives his or her testimony to salvation, what the Lord has done in their hearts, how the Lord has cleansed them from their sins, and they are then baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it's precious as a memory to them, but it's also precious to the church. I can remember close with this. I can remember when Angie and I were in California, we would go to evening service at Grace Community Church and they did their baptisms in the evenings. And it was the most precious time because they would have, you know, three, four, five people lined up to do it to do baptisms. And and each of those people would go into the waters of baptism and what would they do? I mean it would there would be people as nervous as nervous gets. And yet, they've got their piece of paper, and they're reading their blessed testimony. And some of these people, beloved, were saved out of some just amazing depths, Just incredible things that they had done in their lives, and they were testifying to the church and to the world what Christ had done in their hearts. What a precious time that was. A precious time it was. If you're sitting here today and you have not been baptized, and you have had, Christ has cleansed your heart, you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, you've been sealed in the Holy Spirit, don't withhold that memory from yourself and don't withhold that blessing from the church. Be baptized. Be baptized. Be obedient. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Lord I praise you that we praise you that we have this testimony this testimony of salvation we when we become yours you send the Holy Spirit you baptize us with the Holy Spirit that is the reality of salvation That you make us yours. And while, while baptism doesn't save us, it is a proclamation that we are yours. It's a proclamation to the church and to the world of what Christ has done in our hearts. Lord, we just ask that as a church that we would be able to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That you would give us the gift to be able to witness the spiritual birth of many. That many would come to know you and many would proclaim in the waters of baptism that they are yours. We want to be obedient in that way. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.